This is my family, mental illness, and me. My name is Pamela Jenkins, and I'm a researcher at the Mental Health Foundation. My mum, Irene, lived with a mental illness. There were voices only she could hear, and she could quickly switch from feeling very high to very low. No one ever talked about it with me when I was young, even though I knew my mum was often unwell. When I was in my 20s, that's when a psychiatrist told me that my mum had schizoaffective disorder. Sadly, I lost her quite recently to COVID-19. But even though she's gone, her mental health will always be a huge part of my life. In each of these podcasts, I'll speak to someone else whose parent has or had a mental illness. In the UK, there are at least 3 million children of parents with mental illness. If you're one, it's really important that you know you're not alone. My Family, Mental Illness and Me is a podcast series from the charity Our Time, with support from the Mental Health Foundation. Our Time champions and supports children of parents with mental illness and their families. We've put links to more information in the show notes. This time, I'm joined by a writer, creator and television producer who has turned her experience of growing up with a mum with bipolar disorder into an award-winning BBC TV show. It's the series she says she wishes had existed when she was younger. Hello, my name is Kaylee Llewellyn. I'm a screenwriter for television. I have a series currently on BBC Three called In My Skin, which is an autobiographical piece about my experiences growing up in Wales with um, a mum who suffers with bipolar disorder type 1. And thank you very, very much for being here. I really appreciate it. I'm very excited to talk to you. So just to start off with, you've already mentioned that, you know, your mum has bipolar. So where would you like to start talking about that experience growing up as a child? Well, it's sort of fast and varied, isn't it? A good starting point is probably the basis of where my of, of what my TV show is built around, which is sort of the sense of shame that I had um, as a teenager, not knowing anyone else living through it. I mean, people were living through it, I'm certain. I just didn't know it. Um, so I felt quite alone with that um, and felt like it was something that I had to hide. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really common experience I think and interesting that you say that there will have been so many more people that were going through it and maybe we're more aware of that now but at the time it was just I guess not spoken about Mm. so what's your what's your earliest memory then of your mum's mental illness in hindsight looking back now I can see that there was things when I was much smaller that probably weren't normal you know all my friends have kids now and I I know they wouldn't do these things so for instance there would be days when she just um wouldn't get out of bed she she could sometimes oscillate between that sort of complete lack of energy she'd just stay in bed and we'd sort of be creeping around or I'd get up in the morning and she'd already been up for three hours and the house was spotless and you know she was she planned a day out and you know just sort of completely up but she didn't have her first full-scale breakdown until I was 10 years old. That's when she was sectioned for the first time. I know now that she was also sectioned before I was born. But, you know, in my memory, I, I was 10. I was 10 when that first happened. And was that explained to you what was happening? No, I don't think so. 
back then it was called, um, I think they said she had manic depression as opposed to bipolar. Yeah. And I was going into the hospital. Again, this is sort of touched upon in my TV show, but the hospital where my mum was sectioned just so happened to be sort of a couple of minutes away from my school. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was it was really close quarters. And it was sort of the place where when all the kids went out for bike rides on the weekends, we would go to the mental hospital and there would be this kind of like, oh my God, it's really scary. Or we'd kind of cycle in and there was a derelict building (laughs) on the grounds nearby that you could go into. And we'd kind of treat it like this exciting place to go and tell ghost stories or be like, God, imagine being in there. It was quite... when it's it's um closed down now, but kind of like one of those old Victorian asylum type of buildings. Yeah. And so then going back there with my mum actually being inside, I remember really just sort of blowing my mind. Um and the locked doors and and everything else. And I, I don't think I don't think my family knew enough or probably even know enough now still to to know how to explain that to a child. So I just went along and knew that she was going to be there for a while. Yeah. Any of the doctors or any external people, social workers, did anybody broach it with you or was it left to your imagination? God, I've never thought about this before. I don't, I don't think anyone did, no. I mean, the nurses were perfectly nice, um, but no one said this is what's happening. Yeah, it's really common. It was similar for me. My mum had schizoaffective disorder and nobody, which involves bipolar, so it's bipolar and schizophrenia and nothing you know nobody mentioned it when I was young and did your mum ever talk to you about it her her illness not really we we talk about it a little bit more now potentially there there is a a feeling although it's not confirmed that my mum's disorder has now evolved into schizoaffective disorder as well that's one thing that last time she was sectioned one of the doctors there mentioned to me because she was having seeing people who weren't there effectively and having conversations with them and and various other things that had led them to think that it's so hard when you're from like working class or benefit class even poor background Wales back in the late 90s and early noughties just people don't talk about this stuff and even to this day if I say to my mum you should go to therapy she always says why as if like (laughs) there would be nothing for her to talk about it just it just is yeah it's just medicated rather than actually you know I think with some mental health problems there is that inclination towards talking therapies but there are the lower level sort of depressions anxieties I think there's more talking therapy maybe that goes on there but when it comes to some more severe conditions there's just that well medicate it that's there's there's not the same inclination that's the same impression I get is that that it's just not not spoken about as much would you say all of this had any effect on your mental health when you were a child absolutely um my dad was also abusive and um alcoholic and a drug addict so I mean already the strains of being a child in that environment was taking its toll but this added an extra level And I developed, this was undiagnosed, but I know now as an adult looking back, I had developed OCD when I was 10 and was just petrified all of the time that either my mum or my sister was going to die. 
I just, you know, every single day that was, I woke up with fear and went to bed with fear and developed all these little ticks that I was doing in, in my mind to keep them both safe. And it was really debilitating. And I developed IBS, irritable bowel syndrome at the same time, just had like a constant stomach ache. Uh, Yeah. And so, so just kind of mentally that was taking its toll. And then when I got a little bit older into my teen years for, for quite a long time, really, I had this feeling in the back of my mind. I, I think my dad probably had his own, he's passed away now, but had his own undiagnosed mental health issues. Um, and my mum as well. And so somewhere in the back of my mind, I always had this feeling of like, well, then it, it's, it's going to happen to me too. One day I'm just going to break and it, I'll, I'll have my own breakdown. And it wasn't until I was in therapy when I was maybe like 28 that a therapist said to me, so few people suffering with, with a genuine mental health condition sit in front of me saying, I'm, I'm worried that, I'm losing my mind. She's like, generally, if you're in a yeah. state where you've lost your mind, you don't think you have. You think everyone else has. <laughs> so the fact that you're concerned is probably yeah probably absolutely. means you're okay. <laughs> yeah, that's a good thing. Yeah, the the not recognizing the the illness is a is a real feature of schizoaffective disorder, certainly. And was your did your mum recognize that she was ill? Do you think she's had so many breakdowns now, and there's always a cycle. And at first, very much, no, she's, you know, she's Jesus and queen of the world. Yeah. And then as the cycle goes on and she becomes sectioned and she's medicated and maybe a few weeks in is when she will start to say, I'm not well. But it takes a while. Yeah. That's a scary thing when you're little, that cycle mm. that you're talking about. That's a, a really difficult thing for a child. Did, how did you feel when those cycles happened? I so scared and unmoored, particularly because we didn't have a safe home life at the best of times. My mum was the the safety in in that house. So when she was taken out of the equation, it felt like there was nowhere to rest. Home wasn't safe without her. And certainly being in the hospital never felt relaxing in any way. Mm -hmm. Um, so just terrified all the time and just kind of like counting down the days and thinking she'll be better soon because you start to go, okay, well, she tends to go in for maybe six weeks at a time. So I'm just counting down the six weeks. And then when she comes home, maybe it takes a month or so for her to return to herself. But I think in the selfish way of a child, I wanted her to get back to the place where she did stuff for me. So I was always waiting, like, when can my mum drop me to my after school club again and when's she going to cook my dinner again which on the surface is like I want someone to do those things for me but I know underneath that it was when she's doing those things again she's my mum again things I can think things are normal again so I'd just be counting down the days until she expressed some desire to get up and and do stuff (laughs) I suppose yeah that's hard as well the the sleeping you've spoken a couple of times about the extensive sleeping that was something that my mum did a lot. And at the time, you don't know anything different. You don't realise how hard it is and how hard it was. And now, you know, my mum would sleep till two, three o'clock in the afternoon. You know, it is normalised. But that's a really hard thing now to look back on and realise it was a really difficult time and a really difficult experience. 
Do you, you say we, do you have siblings? Yeah, I have a younger sister and I had two older brothers. One of them has passed away now, but they were quite a bit older than us. So they had actually left home by the time my mum had her first breakdown. Okay. So they weren't really around to kind of help in any way, I suppose. Yeah. Did you have any other additional sort of supports around you? Yeah, my mum's mum, who was an amazing woman and sort of, I think, kept us all afloat really throughout that time yeah and 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 again did she ever have any conversations with you about your mum's mental illness no I mean she was a she was a wonderful woman and I think I sort of attribute everything that's healthy in my life now as being down to the fact that I had her but again you know very working class old school Welsh woman it was just something to be swept under the rug and you know, cook meals, clean the house, do the practical things, but no conversations Mm -hmm. beyond that. And how about uh, friendships and things at school? I know that In My Skin talks a lot about this sort of double life that you felt that that you led. Did you talk to anybody at school about what was happening at home? No. My first girlfriend when I was sort of 17, 18, was the first person that I you know, sort of formally told. At the time, I I thought I did a very good job at hiding it, but I'm certain I didn't. People probably knew a lot more and just out of kindness were not commenting on it. There was one occasion where a friend phoned my, my house phone, as we had back in those days, to <laughs> talk to me. And my dad answered the phone and being the man he is, you know, or was, n- knowing that, I didn't want to tell anyone. I wanted to keep it a secret. He told this girl. He said, she's not here. She's at the mental hospital with her mum. And that girl, who a really w- wonderful friend, actually, who I, I still know. But I remember the next day we walked to school and she tried to gently bring it up. She said, is your mum in hospital? And so I sort of, my blood ran cold. And I was like, why, do you, why are you asking that? And she said, oh, because I called your dad. And he said this thing. And I just quickly said, no, no, she is in hospital, but it's not, it's not mental hospital. It's, um, it's, it's just normal hospital. She's ill. And she just sort of went, okay. And we didn't speak about it again. And why did you not want anybody to know why your mum was in a mental health hospital? Just deep, deep shame, I think. And probably, you know, beginning from all the people around me and my family setting the precedent that this is something we don't talk about. It wasn't only that, you know, my dad, as I say, abusive alcoholic. We didn't have any money. Our house was a mess. My dad was in prison when I was born and they had previously been living in quite a rough area of Cardiff and my mum had been really determined to get us a council house in in a posher area of Cardiff because she wanted me and my sister to go to a good school. So she managed to get us a house there. So we got to grow up in this posher area, which was a, a wonderful thing that she, I, she did for us. And I knew she was really proud that she'd managed to do that for us. But subsequently, it meant that we we stood out on the street. Do you know what I mean? Not yeah. that the people there yeah. were rich by any stretch, but they had like their nice semi-detached houses and their two cars and their holidays. And we just, my dad was a rag and bone man. And he drove around Cardiff with a truck full of scrap metal and things that he'd stolen. And it was just so humiliating. 
for me all the time. Um, yeah, so it, it wasn't just the mental health stuff. It was so many different things. And I knew the way he treated my mum and my brothers, he was extremely abusive with my brothers. I knew all of that stuff was not to be, not to be shown to other yeah. people. Yeah. I find that interesting. I mean, I can't relate in, in terms of, you know, with your father, but the, it's interesting to me that the the working class element compounded the the, men, the situation with the mental illness and the stigma. I grew up in the east end of Glasgow um, as a young child, and we had a we were in a four in a block council house, and that was fine. And then um, I didn't know any different, and we were very happy. But after my dad died and my mum couldn't look after me on her own, the decision was made that I would stay with my aunt and uncle. And I ended up going to a really good school where everybody had very proper accents. So for a start, starting off on my first day with the thickest Glaswegian accent mm. in this <laughs> school with all these kids with really lovely accents was that's how it was fine. But I felt different straight away. Yeah. It was this double life that I then led going to this fancy school and then going home to the East End of Glasgow at the weekends where my mum you know, lived in a four in a block, didn't drive, smoked. I find that really challenging. Mm. Nobody was smoking. So I didn't want anybody to come or smell the smoke on my clothes. And then she had her mental illness. So it was almost like I had to hide her and that life, you know, and that sense of shame that now translates into shame about having done that, the guilt of having done that. I feel bad now. Yeah. But it's it, when you're a child, these things matter. And when nobody's talking about it, mm. you just don't think anybody could possibly understand and they won't make fun or you just have to hide it. That smell, that smell of smoke thing is so visceral to me. Both my parents and both my brothers, when they lived at home, all smoked. So we have four people in a house, all the windows closed. Yeah. And I remember the same <laughs> thing, you know, going to sleepovers and pulling out my pyjamas and being like, mine smell no yeah. one else's smell and just that deep deep shame honestly and and even now even though there was that shame it's a comforting smell that reminds me of my mum mm. so if I pass somebody and I can smell that they're smoking whatever I get a, a calmness from it even though it was a very stressful thing at the time um although not until I left you know not until I moved out mm. I didn't know it was bad until I went to live with my aunt and uncle and you know, stayed elsewhere. And I remember a friend coming for a sleepover. So I did invite a friend from the school home with me one weekend. And she was, oh, in the middle of the night, I woke up and she had opened the window and she was sat at the window breathing because oh. she was not able to breathe well. Oh, and God. I just, it was off. I, like it just stays with me. And so I never then had anybody round. That was just sort of the tip of the iceberg because there was the standing in the kitchen talking. My mom would just stand in the kitchen all day and sort of chat to herself. And I mean, she was being a parent as well, but, you know, she would talk to herself a lot. And it was the permanent sort of, you know, nipping in and remember not to talk to yourself. Don't let them see you. Yeah. There's a lack of control there on everybody's part. Mm. So it's just... Yeah, for the child, it's um, it's very tricky. So that's interesting, yeah. and I'm assuming you're not a smoker. No, I've never, <laughs> I've never touched one in my life. Which my friends sort of, you know, 
All, all of my friends have smoked at some point, and they smoke now. Or, or the same with drugs as well, you know, pe- when people would start dabbling with drugs. And in my head, mm-hmm. I'd always think that's a luxury you get because you've had a safe, calm childhood, that these are just fun things yeah. you experiment with. I'm, I'm so beyond yeah. thinking this is fun. Yes, completely understand. It's like a risk aversion. Yeah, uh, yeah I've never tried a cigarette or a drug. So do you feel that there are other elements of your personality or or your approach to life that have been influenced by your experience? So if you're, you're risk averse, how else would you describe yourself that you think has been affected by that experience? I'm a fixer. I often enforce my help on people who have not sometimes would like that help from their friends and other times very much haven't asked for it. But, you know, it really... If someone has any kind of issue, it doesn't even have to be a mental health issue. If it's even they're just like, don't know if I like my job, I can't let that lie. Yeah, I've got to go and think about yeah. well, what are their prospects then? Do they have to stay in that job? They shouldn't have to stay in a job they don't like. And then I'll sort of send them yeah. courses that they might think about <laughs> signing up for and tell them what job I think yeah. they might like. Um, I think I really go out of my way, but it you know, I've had situations before where I've had friends who maybe have been in relationships that are slightly abusive, not not to the degree that my dad was, but there's, you know, elements of coercive control or, you know, and I'll really throw myself into that and offer help and financial help and you should come and stay with me and da da da. And I have, I've lost a few friends in the past because there's got, they've, we've gotten to a cap where they're not willing to help themselves as in, they're choosing to stay in a situation which this isn't just me projecting on them. It's not good. The man is the man has hit them, pushed them, etc. Which growing up, you know, my mum, there were so many occasions where she left my dad and then would always go back. And I've hit a point with a couple of friends where I've had to just go, I can't speak to you anymore because I find it incredibly mm-hmm. triggering. There's a, there's a point to which I want to help. And, um, and then if they yeah. choose to stay there, I just sort of, you know, I wish you well, but this is this is so hard for me to watch you not not getting out of this. Yeah, I haven't done that in a few years. I suppose trying, you know, as we try and grow and think, stop enforcing my views on other people. But um, yeah, being a fixer is definitely a big one, and just generally uh, a desire to feel safe. I have to have a very calm house. Me and my girlfriend never raise our voices at one another. It's not to say we don't argue, but it is always conducted in a quiet, calm voice. If she, if I, I couldn't be in, in a relationship with someone who shouted at me, which I, some people, you know, you raise your voice, you lose your call, it's fine. I, I couldn't cope with that. Yeah. And that's understandable. Nobody should have to be shouted at mm. or put up, you know, and like you say, some people are quite comfortable in that, that sort of dynamic and that's fine, but that's a completely reasonable expectation from a relationship that you wouldn't try to each other. Mm. I'm interested to sort of talk to you a wee bit more about this idea of shame and stigma. As you became sort of an older teenager and a young adult, did you carry that stigma with you, do you think, that or that sense of shame as, as you left school and sort of embarked on your early career life? Yeah, absolutely. It wasn't until I wrote in my skin, I think, that I even 
truly started feeling like it was something I could be open with. That's not to say I definitely would speak to my friends about it by then. When was that? It was about 30, I think, when I wrote In My Skin. And it was only through writing the show that I then realised the amount of people who would either read the script or were coming to work on it. And like one in every three people on average would go, oh my God, me too. My uncle, my dad, my granddad, you know. Yeah. I'm realising how prevalent it was and I just hadn't known. So that that went a huge way in helping me be more honest about it. And I think, you know, chipping away at this, but I've just had constant imposter syndrome my whole life. Like they're going to find me out. They're going to find me out. Even if things are going well, just like it's only because they haven't seen the real me. I've just convinced them I'm better than I am. Than I am. They're going to see what I really am soon. Oh, that's not true. You should not have that. You should not have that. But I, I can understand it. Do you think that's, again, as a result of everything that's happened? And how you grew up. I think so. Yeah, I think if you're you're born into that sort of being told, not not being told, but intuiting that um, you should hide things from very young, yeah. and just never feeling safe. You know, e- even as a tiny baby, you know, I think I spent quite a lot of time with my grandmother and an auntie when my mum wasn't well, and sort of always just going, I don't have strong roots. Nothing is stable here, and I think you know you just carry that through on the flip side what I will say is I'm very good in a crisis Uh I'm very good at staying calm just when my friends are freaking out about something I'm like oh you think you think this is oh you think this is bad you I think (laughs) I think we can cope I think this is okay and that's a great skill to have to be that person I always like to think of myself as quite calm in a crisis I always have been until I had children oh really and now I feel like I am I don't even recognize myself if something happens. We had a bit of an incident on the way home from school a couple of weeks ago. My five-year-old, I'd given him chocolate buttons. They'd all melted and he'd put them all into his mouth and they were stuck. And there was nobody there other than my other son who was not very helpful. (laughs) And I just went into this panic and started trying to give him the Heimlich maneuver, which I know under normal circumstances when I'm not panicking, you never do to a child. Like you oh. can damage them. So there I am. The whole thing was just, and there was this moment of, I can't help him. Like there's nothing I can do here. I don't know what happened. It all sort of flashed by and then he was fine. It came out somehow. I think that's that panic and that not thinking rationally is a new development that now has happened. And I do think that that calmness is still there in a crisis. I need to try and hone that again. Because it's a it's a very, very good skill to have. There's a particular kind of fear though. Well, I'm not a parent, but even just, you know, look taking care of young friends, kids, or nieces and nephews, and just kind of that like your life is yeah. truly in my hands. I think I think to be <laughs> fair to you, a lot of people would lose their cool in that situation. <laughs> I was reading um the article that you the interview you did in The Guardian. It was interesting. You were saying um, the actor that played your mother in the in the show, you you made the decision not to have her meet your mum. Mm. I wondered, sort of, you know, what your what why that was. Why were you keen for them not to meet? Twofold, really. Um, first and foremost, I felt very responsible for my mum's well being around the show. When I, so I initially wrote the pilot 
script, which was picked mm-hmm. up just to be shot as one half hour. And then that went well and they, they sent the whole thing to series. So we sort of did it in smaller stages. And I think when I wrote the script, I mm-hmm. my mum is very unwell, you know, so medicated and living a half-life, really. She's not the woman she was before. Doesn't really have enough energy to, to have a conversation even. But she hadn't had a breakdown in 10 years at that point. So I think that's why I thought, oh, this is a time when I can reflect on this now. Also thinking no one will ever make it because that, up until that point I'd written loads of scripts and they'd never gone anywhere. So I was like, well, I'll just be really honest and it, nothing will happen. And obviously that is the show that gets picked up. But five days after they commissioned the pilot, my mum had a breakdown and went back into hospital and it wound up being the worst year for her mental health that she's ever had. She was sectioned six times in a year. So I immediately was plunged into this crisis of, of thinking I'm exploiting her. I shouldn't be doing this. This isn't fair. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and just really having this sort of like crisis of confidence about what I should be doing. Um, and thinking my family were all going to be really mad at me, that they were going to judge me, that they would think I was being selfish, going back and forth and back and forth, doing a lot of therapy. And then eventually just kind of coming to this realisation of this is how I heal myself. I love her and care for her and want the best for her. But there's also a sort of line where you then say, and what what do I need for myself? And people find different ways to heal themselves. And mine has been writing this story. And so sort of coming to that realisation that I am allowed to need something. Sometimes, which that's talking about, um, you know, ways this has affected me growing up. I never feel that I should need something. Even saying the word I need feels uncomfortable to me. So so reckoning with that mm-hmm. and also coming to the conclusion of like, I think this will help people. It would have helped me. It will help people. It's for the greater good. But still with all of that in mind, you know, going, I just, I can't put her through this. Um, s- side note on that, where, where we wound up filming the pilot, yeah. um, the mental hospital scenes, my mum was sectioned in that facility while we were filming there. And we couldn't have known that was going to happen. It, it is the only wow. hospital in Cardiff where you can film a TV show. And she was there. So anyway, and, and, and suffering with sort of paranoid delusions, thinking she was going to be on the news, that a camera crew were following her, you know, all these things that just crazy, all this like crazy storm of things all happening at once that I couldn't have predicted. And, to make the best possible TV, it's not, or, or tell the best possible story, it's not always telling things exactly as they happened because life doesn't happen in a beautiful five act structure. So I wanted Joe to have freedom not to just be doing an impression of my mum. But yeah. what, what then happened, which is whenever this this happens, which just makes the hairs on the on the back of my arms raise up, even without her having met my mum. There would be times, we use improv, I should say, in the show. So I will script it, but then we'll also allow the actors freedom to improvise, particularly with Joe. And so there would be times when Joe would walk into the room and start performing and it would be like I was looking at my mum. Even without having met her, her tone, the look in her eyes, certain phrases she would pull out that my mum had said to me before and that we'd never discussed. And it just felt like, oh, this is 
some kind of eerie magic that's happening here. That must have been hard. How did that feel? Did it did it upset you? Did it make you feel good? During the first series, I think because I've spent so long writing the scripts alone, I tend to get my... I'm not a big crier anyway, traditionally, obviously. <laughs> Growing up in, in my household, it's no time for kids to be crying. But I would sometimes cry. And I would get this thing where when I was writing the scripts, sometimes I would just start to shake. And, and that happened again when I was just writing the second series. And, and I'd always be like, why am I shaking? And sort of like my hands would be shaking as I was writing, type, typing at the keys. And I had this realisation recently of, of like, this is what happens when your body almost goes into shock or, you know, something frightening happens, you shake. And I just had this realisation that it was because I was opening this really old trauma as I was writing, you know, and I was bringing it out, almost like lancing a boil. And I was shaking because I was reliving it. But it became this gauge for me in this kind of like way that writers have to be where you become a Dracula of your own trauma. Whereas like, if I'm shaking, this is good. I've, t- I've tapped into something good because this is real. So, so by the time you get to set, normally everyone else will be crying and I can usually hold it together because I've had that experience. But for series two, oh my God, some sort of, we just finished shooting it last month and some kind of well, some dam had opened and I just, I was crying every day. I was crying at home. I was crying in the car on the way to set. Sometimes I was crying just thinking about what we might be doing. Just, yeah, it's been incredible, but in a good way, you know, in a like, a life full of tears were finally coming out and it felt like the biggest most cathartic release that's brilliant and how about your mum how is she now does she know you're doing the second series she knows she managed to come to set um for one of the episodes in series one which is quite a weird experience really I think the last time it fully felt like she returned to herself after a breakdown was probably 15 years ago now and ever since then, she's gotten incrementally further and further and further away. Yeah. As, this is a slight tangent, but I, if people have been through it, they might relate. When she becomes manic and I feel that a breakdown might be coming, there's this sort of weird, blessed one, one week period, maybe, where it's like my mum is back. It's almost like a ghost has returned from the dead. She's animated, yep. engaged takes an interest, asks me questions, wants to know about my life, can suddenly remember everything. You know, it's like her brain has been turned back on. And it's yeah. it's just bizarre because there's a clock ticking over your head. You're like, I know something bad is coming, but I get one week with you mm. before you're gone again. Yeah. And it tips over. Even though I knew rationally that it wouldn't stay like that, there's always that hope in you that this might be it, mm. maybe maybe it will last this time. And then that disappointment yeah. when it invariably does not, you know, end up that way. Obviously it tips over, a full breakdown happens, you know, she's not well. And then she just gets pumped full of drugs again. And that's not to say I'm anti-drugs because I'm not, she needs them to be well. But I, I just, yeah. one of my, I, I suppose I can't even call it a regret because you can't control these things. But I, I just wish that if she'd had her first big breakdown when I was a grown-up with money and means who knew what to do, 
that I could have got yeah. such a different kind of help. But now we're so, so far, you know, 25 years down the line and she's so medicated and that's all she knows. And she's not yeah. interested in therapy. There's, it almost feels like the, the best thing I can do is just kind of be a calm presence as opposed to try and force mm-hmm. her into help. She doesn't want but I do still believe that that woman who comes back for a week, she's still in there and we're just yeah. numbing her into a place. She's so yeah. sedated all the time. It's just sad, yeah. really. It is. It's so sad. And that aspect that you talked about where each time it happens, you know, she doesn't come back to the same extent and that's happened over time. How much of that is really down to the illness? This is a question I always had how much of it is the illness itself progressing and how much of it is just the effects of so much medication. Mm. And It's hard to draw the line between it, isn't it? It's really hard. And it is sad. It is, it's knowing that they're still in there. I, can, I just completely relate to what you're saying. Mm. It's, my mum never completely went away. She, was still, she had, still had a wee sparkle in her eye, but you don't get that same person back. It's like they're sort of hidden under... They're on the mm-hmm. seabed with all the ocean yeah. above them and they're just sort of, you know, it's like she's muted yeah. from, from life in a way. I, I, it's so hard, isn't it? Because I'm saying this, I'm going up, but I'm not someone who would advocate no medication for bipolar because she absolutely needs it. But it feels yeah. like there needs to be a whole new way forward where we combine different kinds of medication, always with therapy. Yeah. The fact that my mum's my never been offered talk therapy ever. That just is mm-hmm. insane to me. She's such a traumatised yeah. woman. It's not like she was fully well and suddenly this disorder struck her out of nowhere. She was abused as a child. Mm-hmm. She was in an abusive yeah. relationship for 20 years before her first breakdown. She's been through extreme trauma since then. We had a few years ago, we had six family members die in one year, which was her ex-husband her mother and her father, her eldest son, her only grandson, her daughter-in-law. They all died in one year. And again, still no therapy for her. She's a a broken woman and she needs more than medication. We all do. We all need, everyone would benefit from therapy. It's true. And those subject areas that are stigmatised, so the trauma, the abuse, the mental illness, it's sort of incremental. So the more there's a stigma around this area here, we won't talk about that, then we'd, it goes up a level, somebody's got mental illness, we won't talk about that and we won't talk about what's causing it. And then it just sort of perpetuates the cycle mm. of not not talking, just makes things build and build and build. And actually, I think you're right, a combination would be nice to see. Just sort of novel approaches to this because it seems that for a very long time there's been one way forward. Mm. How can we change it a little bit to make the the treatment a bit more nuanced, maybe? And I saw a few years ago, I saw this amazing, I can't think of her name now, but an amazing psychologist talking. And one of the things she said, it's so simple to think of it this way, but she said, rather than calling them mental illnesses, which almost sounds like something you were born with, that's your lot. Mm-hmm. The best you can do is try and yep. manage it. She said, what we actually should be calling them is trauma responses. Oh. She was like, in nearly every case, it's I hardly ever meet someone, whether it might not necessarily be bipolar, depression, alcoholism, suicidal thoughts. They are all different methods of our bodies finding a way to go, I'm not coping. 
this thing has hurt me, something has hurt me, mm-hmm. and I'm not coping, and I need help. And she said, when you've reframed them as trauma responses, it takes the onus off, oh, you were just born with it, bad luck. Instead, yeah. forces us to think about what has happened to them, because nearly always something has happened. And when you call it a trauma response, instead of I was just born with this, there's some hope wrapped up in that. Just by changing a few words, it almost enforces empathy. Because if you see the mentally ill person on the street, it's easy to go, oh, weird, walk away from them. They're weird. Yeah. But instead of that, if we call them trauma responses, it makes you think about the story before. What happened to them? Why are they like that? What are they reacting to? Instead of just like, oh, they were born weird. Don't talk about them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's that assumption that they were born, that people were born that way. And again, and this is a subject that's come up in other discussions, it's then that worry that the offspring as a child, that you will then automatically have a mental illness because your parent did. And that's just not necessarily the case. Are you, Now that you're an adult, how is your mental health and well-being, would you say? I'm moving through phases, I think. So I, I've done many years of therapy. My sister makes fun of me because every time she talks about any problem or any of her friends have got a problem, I'm like thrusting a card for a therapist over. I've got like, <laughs> yeah, I think fixing like 10 of my friends <laughs> are all seeing the therapist. I've seen someone, she's amazing, she's amazing, you've got to go. Um, so that was really <laughs> helpful. And then I went, that, that therapist did a great thing where she was like, do you know what? You're in a good place. You've had a really hard life. Why don't you just pop off for a year and just be calm and just go and just enjoy your life? So I was like, yeah, I will do that. So I've been doing that for a while. The thing I'm about to go back through <laughs> and try somatic therapy. Have you heard of that? That's something to do with sleeping. It's less about talk therapy. And that's not to say I'm not a proponent of talk therapy. I am. That's been wonderful. But it's about working more with your body and where in your body you feel certain reactions and to different situations. And and so it's it's almost like a physical sort of therapy. Mm. Because I've done a lot of talk therapy. I've also done EMDR. But I think being a writer and also just the life I've led, I've become very good at completely closing off my body and just intellectualizing which has served me until this point. But I also, I'm aware that it's not healthy. And I think I'm at a place where I'm like, let's, let's unlock the body. Let's, t- let's give the brain a rest and figure <laughs> out what's going on. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So what does that entail then? How do you unlock? These things are stored in our, in our muscles, in our body. And now it's yeah. time to let that out. So it's some, I think you do some sort of like shouting and screaming and, jumping around a bit all these things make my toes curl at the suggestion that I'm going to have to do that (laughs) but I think that's a sign that I should do it yeah absolutely oh I'm intrigued you'll have to get back to us on that one I'll let you know maybe that will evolve as being a key component of future treatment for different mental health conditions you never know there's one thing I wanted to ask you um again you I've spoken about, it sort of relates to what you said before around shame. Could you just sort of tell me a wee bit more about that for you, that juncture between the love for your mum and how you were experiencing her mental illness as a child and how it made you feel? I can sort of remember the shifting moment when I went from feeling 
like my mum was the most incredible person on earth, which I don't not think anymore you know she was particularly when I was young she did so much to try and protect us from the house we were in and I just I felt so adored by her which I think Mm -hmm. it makes up for a lot you know just having someone say that to you I love you more than anything in the world and I really felt it and knew it yeah I'm just feeling that she was a person who would kiss things better and then I remember the shifting moment where I realised actually I was going to have to be the parent. That she wasn't... That as I was growing and maturing and learning more about the world, that when I was too young, the the, the shifting point happened where I... Over, overtaking her is the wrong word because that's just in saying I became more intelligent than her. It's not, it's not about intelligence. It's mm-hmm. about... I don't know. I just realised that I was going to have to be the boss and I was like 12 and that she wasn't going to make sensible what I deemed to be sensible choices for me or my sister or for herself and just suddenly feeling like oh now I'm the mum I've got to take that mantle up Mm -hmm. yeah you're a carer then Mm -hmm. at that point it's and that's a really huge amount of responsibility for a child and it would be really nice to see support put in place for children in similar situations because there's just, it's just not there. And it's the emotional support as well, I think, as well as the tangible support, like people there on the ground. Mm. It's the being able to talk about it because that's that's a weighty childhood, even with the, all the love that it sounds like you and your mum had for one another, mm-hmm. have still. But as a child, you know, Coping with that responsibility is very difficult. It takes its toll. And what the what ifs? The what ifs? Mm. Oh my word! There, we could have a whole, a whole other episode about the what ifs. Mm. Do you dream a lot about the what ifs? And did you when you were young? Yeah, definitely. And and still, I I try to not do it as much now because I think really it's just a, a way of punishing myself. <laughs> um, in a situation of like, you know, you just, at a certain point, you have to go, I did all I could and all I knew to do. I was a child. Yeah. But what if, what if we'd gotten her therapy? What if I'd had mm. the means to get her a doctor? The NHS are fantastic, but they're obviously so stretched so thinly. Mm-hmm. Those what ifs I think about a lot. What if, what if, what if, what if, where would she be now? She's only 65. Yeah. She might still be working. But it isn't it isn't the way it went down. I know. I know. Maybe one day it will be different. For other people, I hope so. Last year I tried to get my mum to tell me she made these fantastic um this fantastic meatloaf when I was young. And I tried to get her to tell me the recipe and she wasn't even aware that she'd really made meatloaf before. Mm. So I, I, I have all these questions now, not just about meatloaf, but about all kinds of of things about the past and I just oh I never asked and I I just Mm. I wondered and then just never asked well Kayleigh thank you so so much for being here to talk to me today it's just been just a joy to hear your story and cannot wait for the second series absolutely thank you for having me it's been a complete pleasure and thank you for making this podcast I hope it's going to help a lot of people oh thank you 
Oh, goodness, it was so great to share stories and memories with screenwriter Kaylee Llewellyn. Do check out Kaylee's series In My Skin on BBC Three if you haven't already. It's absolutely brilliant. And I do believe there's a second series coming very soon. Visit ourtime.org.uk for support and resources for children and families affected by parental mental illness. You can follow them on social media at Our Time Charity. And we've also put lots more links and places to find information and support in the show notes. Also, if you feel like you're struggling with mental health or you've been affected by anything in this episode, it's really important you speak to someone. There are links to help in the show notes, but also you can contact your GP, the Samaritans on 116123 or Childline 0800 1111. Thank you so much for being with us today. Subscribe to our feed so you get future episodes automatically downloaded. And if you know someone who'd benefit from hearing these stories we're sharing, please let them know we're here. That's really important. We really want people to know that they're not alone. This is a Bespoken Media production with music and sound design by Joe Cox. See you next time.